Welcome to the LifeSpring Church Podcast. May the Word of God be a blessing to you. Connect with us and consider giving online at lifespringchurch.us. In prayer and thought for what to speak on today, I was taken back to maybe just, just some basics. Just some basics. Just to rehearse some of the basics in our hearts and minds today. <clears throat> one of the elders said one time, if you've sat down to study and you've studied all that you know to study and you can't come up with anything to preach out of 50, out of 66 books in the Bible and all of the love letter that God's written to us, just preach Jesus. <clears throat> so today we're just going to preach Jesus. We're going to preach him and what he is and what he's spoken to us and what he's given to us in his word. So, if you need a fancy title today, I got one for you. Bible Basics. There's your fancy title. The Bible Basics. <clears throat> First, to understand scripture, we must recognize that the Bible is the inspired word of of God. This is the reason Satan brings to us the lies that try to discredit the Word of God. I'll get to some Bible verses here in a little bit. Wayne's like, I hope so. I entered a lot of them today. <laughs> we live in a world that you either believe in God. Or people have rejected God. Or there's people who haven't yet decided if they know if God exists. So we have believers, agnostics, or the atheist. To say the Bible is the inspired word of God to an atheist is really of no value to them. Say the Bible is the inspired word of God to an agnostic should cause them to question and dig in and research. One former atheist told the story of him and how a friend of his who was a believer was, was witnessing to him and he being, him being a proclaimed atheist and his his friend didn't really know where he stood at the time and so his friend asked him are you a believer do you believe in Jesus Christ and this individual responded oh no 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 I'm an atheist and the believer said well how do you know you're an atheist and he goes well there's just no god this can't be a guy he goes no like can you prove there's not a god he goes, oh no I'm just I'm just an atheist and his friend very Bluntly and bold, looked at him and said, no, you're a fool. <laughs> Which probably would have caught all of us by surprise. And he said, well, what do you mean I'm a fool? And he goes, well, if you're an atheist, you would have proof. You would have done the research. You would have taken time. You would have studied. You would have built a cause and a case and a justification. And you would have been able to answer my question. But you're not a real atheist. You're an agnostic. You don't know if there's a God. Right. 
Today, I want to help you understand there is a God. And he's not just some distant, far-off, celestial being, unobtainable. But his own words to us were, he will stick closer than a brother. He is the dearest of friends. He loves us with a love that has no reward or recompense tied to it. He is an incredible God. And he wrote his word to us. Now how do we know it is truly his word and that it is true? Well, there's 66 books written by a multitude of different writers over thousands of years Individuals that didn't even know each other, who hadn't had the opportunity to read each other's writings. And when it all comes together to us, here thousands of years later, it's intertwined and woven in such a way that only one master author could have been the oversight for its writing. I should have grabbed the graphic. I didn't get it. Look it up. You can, this is one thing you can Google about religion and not get thrown off into a wild rabbit hole. There's a graphic. It's normally a back black ground and it has different colored arcs. And at the bottom, it has every book of the Bible. No, every verse of the Bible. And it has a line that goes from every verse back and forth for every verse that cross-references itself. You'll go dizzy trying to follow all the lines. There's thousands upon thousands of lines showing the interweaving of the word of God with itself. <coughs> it is undeniably written or authored by a higher power. Written by the man, the hand of man, but authored by God. Now, there are those who have tried to disprove the word of God. They've come up with their own ideas, their own theories, their own hypothesis. They've tried to use science as a tool of fact to disprove fact. There's one thing wrong with science. If science isn't based upon the beginning, then it's based upon a fallacy. Here's something I find interesting about stuff. I like truth. I like facts. I'm probably the geekiest geek in here and the nerdiest of nerds in here. Just ask my family. Quentin has his feet. <laughs> he got it good. <clears throat> I lost my train of thought. That's what happens when you have a cloudy mind. They've tried to disprove Scripture a million different ways. They've come up with their own ideas, their own thoughts, their own processes. And I like science, but I'm not anti-science, but science has to be based on reality. Isn't it interesting how scientists can do a million different experiments 
And the one time their hypothesis gets proven, they throw out the 999,999 experiments that disprove them, and they grab the one, write an article about it, put it in a journal, get a Nobel Peace Prize or Nobel Scientific Award over it, and everybody's like, that's the truth. It's the one anomaly over the last 50 years. Maybe there was something out of alignment in your experiment. You have to go back to truth. Every true fact in this world points to the creation story in the Bible. If you study the history of man from a secular standpoint, remove the Bible, just study the history of man, go back to the Chinese empires and study the Chinese empires, just the generations, and you work backwards. Go up and study the, the people of Ireland and, and Norway and back into the, the Vikings, and you study all of those people back in time. You're like, is this guy ever going to get the Bible today? I'm, I'm working my way there. Just stay with me. You go back and you study Mexico and South America and the, the Incans and, and all of them and generations back and back and back, and you follow their stories. It's amazing. If you calculate the generations back to the beginning of people, it's about 6,000 years. You know, kind of like the Bible tells us. It's amazing how we could come up with a story that the entire earth was covered with ice. And it took thousands and thousands and thousands and millions of years for this process to begin, exist, and end. And the same effect from those millions of years can be quantified and verified and proved in a year and a half flood on the earth. It's amazing how it took millions of years for that fossil to be found so many layers deep in the sediment of the earth. But if you study creation and you study how water flows across the earth, and if you were to take a globe completely covered in water and you were to move it and let it wash and erode and layer, you would have the same sediment in a year and a half. It's amazing how it takes millions and millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of years for decayed matter, organic matter to turn into oil down deep inside the soil. But if you just go out in the backyard and bury something and dig it up in a little while, a few years later, you see that it's already begun to emulsify. Is that the right word? Deteriorate. All of creation screams to us that God is real. Take the human body. Just how does the human body work, exist, and function? Don't even take the whole human body. Just take one part of the human body. Take the human eyeball. How can organic matter receive light upside down 
flip it over the correct way, and make your brain see an image. How's that work? Someone explain that to me. How do the muscles inside of your eye know the appropriate amount of contraction to have in order to control the amount of light that goes in so that everything's just not a big blur? Have you ever looked at an... Go do a Google image search on eyeball. And just look at the intricate detail that makes up the iris of your eye. There's no artist that has a paintbrush that's that delicate. Only God could do that. So, God is real. The creation story is real. And the Bible is real. And if these things are real, then we have to build on that foundation of the reality of Scripture being truth. And that means everything else in Scripture follows truth. So when God says He loves you, that's not some fictitious writing in Scripture. God loves you. God loves you is just as true as God said, let there be light and there was light. God loves you is just as true as a statement as God said, let there be fowls in the air and there were birds in the air. So don't you ever doubt that God loves you because he does and he cares for you. And just as true as creation is and just as true as God's love is for us, so is God's judgment for those who are disobedient to him. Well, preacher, now you're getting off on the part that we don't like. Everybody can believe the creation story, and everybody can believe that God loves them, but nobody wants to believe that God can be a judge. You see, justice is a part of God's sovereignty. Everything of a higher authority requires justice. Parents require justice. built into how we operate. Some administrate justice well, others need to go to parenting classes. But we all demand justice. We all have a way of making sure we get the point across. We all have consequences when boundaries are broken and, and things are done out of order. We all have a way of bringing things back in order. And so does God. And he has the right to because he's the highest of all authority. But just as just as God is, his grace and mercy provides us a plan of salvation. So that his judgment does not have to be eternal damnation, as scripture would call it. But it can be eternal blessing with him. You following me today? So what about this one God? His word is true. His love for us is true. His demand for justice is true. And his way for us to be saved 
is true. Who is this God? I'm glad you asked. Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. No, that was not the introduction, I promise. Actually, this sinus infection that I had or whatever has really knocked the energy out of me. So I told my wife, I'm either going to preach until I fall over or it's going to be short today. <clears throat> I don't want to fall over. Deuteronomy 6 and 4 says, Hear, O Israel. Not H-E-R-E. -E, not Location here, ear here, here, listen, pay attention, give me your attention, zone in, catch this, this is an important announcement, ladies and gentlemen, I got something to say, here, oh Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. He is the creator of heaven. He is the creator of earth. He is the creator of all living things in the earth. And he reveals himself to us by his characteristics and different manners throughout time. <coughs> but God is one. He is only one. He has always been one. He is one now and he always will be one. Some would call us who believe in the singularity of God monotheistic. Mono being one, theistic being God. In the world of religions there are monotheistic, there are tritheists, and there are polytheists. Tritheists being those who believe in three personifications of God. Polytheists being many religions that believe in multiple, multiple, multiple gods. Some Eastern religions believing in as many as a millions of gods. We are monotheistic people. Deuteronomy 6 and 4 tells us there is only one mono, God. Theos. He is one. He has always been one. And he will remain only one. But God does speak to us. And God does show himself to us. And God does reveal himself to us in ways and different characteristics. So that we in our finite humanity can interact with him or understand portions and parts of him. God is not redefined and divided by our ability to understand parts of him. It's just him showing himself to us. I'm trying to think of an illustration, putting it together. <clears throat> if the only mathematics we understand is 2 plus 2 equals 4... That doesn't mean 4 times 4 equals in 16 is a different subject. 
it's still mathematics. It's still arithmetic. It's still a calculation. It's still math. It's just maybe something beyond the understanding of the person that only knows 2 plus 2 equals 4. Just because I only understand God in this aspect doesn't reduce him to my understanding. There's probably more of God beyond my understanding, and that's not a, that doesn't make God divisible. It makes him a whole that's bigger than me. So when we say God is our Father, we are not saying that God, well, let's put it this way. Scripture does not personify God as a Father. There is no person of the Father in Scripture. Now, the role of fatherhood is predominant in Scripture. It's, it's very evident in Scripture. Because God is our Father as in a creator. We understand this in Genesis. He created everything that exists. Now, is God simply one who sits around and models things and makes earths and atmospheres and universes? No, he's bigger than creator, but we understand him as a father through creation. Not just in physical creation, but in spiritual creation. Because after he physically formed humanity, he was again father in that he breathed in us the breath of life and we became a living soul. So our soul is the result of the creator creating it in us. He is our spiritual father by giving us a soul. That's not any personification of him. That's still the one infinite God doing something that I don't understand how he did, but he took breath and he made a soul. It's like the scientist who went to God. God, we figured it out. Oh, really? God says. He said, God, we figured out how to make humanity from the dust of the earth. God's like, I'm impressed. I would love to have a demonstration. So the scientists all gathered together. One comes in rolling a big old wheelbarrow of dirt, dumps it there in the feet of the scientists, and they begin to mold, and they begin to sculpt, and they begin to do their work. And about halfway through, God says, you know what? I need you guys to stop. Can you get your own dirt? I don't understand how God's breath makes a living soul. But that's what the word says. And I know I have a soul because I felt God regenerated in the moment of my salvation. But that does not make his fatherhood an individual person in his deity. It's just a character and an, and a, um, an attribute of who he is. Now there are some who don't understand monotheism, who have tried to debunk monotheism, though they've never studied or understand what it is. And one of the things that they have stated, and, and you may run across this, it's, its head has popped up recently with a loud voice. They claim that monotheistic people like us are modalists. 
I'm throwing out some theological seminary words here today. Just hang with me. A modalist is someone who believes in different modes. It's getting deep, I know. It's the deepest it's probably going to get. You can wear your ankle highs today. <clears throat> like the ceiling fan in your house. It has three modes, low, medium, and high. Your fan, as, as a thing that operates in different modes, can't operate in low and high at the same time. You can't have three of the blades on high and two of them on low. It doesn't work that way. It's all low, all medium, or all high. And some have tried to define us as modalists, stating that we believe God operated in the, the role of father for a set period of time and the, the role of son for a set period of time and the role of Holy Spirit for a set period of time. That's not what we believe. That is still a division of one. God is indivisible. He is one, has been one, and will always be one. He is not divided in any way at all. He is still the Father. He is still creating. There are still lost souls that come to Calvary's cross and are still regenerated, and He is still their spiritual Father again and again and again. There are days that I fall on my face in need of a spiritual Father to regenerate salvation inside of me because I messed up. In a simple prayer of repentance... My heavenly father reaches down to me and loves me and cares for me and regenerates hope inside of me again. He is our father. He has been our father and he continues to be our father. Matter of fact, there are many references in scripture where we are in a one-on-one -on -one relationship with God. He is our father. Romans says we can cry, Abba, father, daddy. And we are his children. We have been adopted into his family. So the role of father is not for a period of time in the past. Nor is it set for a period of time in the present or in the future. Father is from beginning to end. Let's go to Isaiah. Chapter 44 and verse 6. Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, and I am the last, and beside me there is no God. He's saying, if you need to know where the beginning is, I'm the beginning. And he's saying, if you need to know where the end is, I'm the end. But this is God communicating to us on our level. Because God has no beginning and God has no end. Now stay with me. I'm going to warp our brains a little bit. When's the beginning? Is the beginning... Of God, your first moment of consciousness to realize there's a God bigger than you? Maybe that's a relative beginning in your life. Is the beginning of God 
creation? To the creation, that's a relative beginning because that's when we first have evidence that God exists. But beyond that, if you keep going backwards, where's the beginning? I can't answer the question. I'm just asking. I can't answer it. I just ask the question. Because God is eternal. If this point from here on the podium to here on the podium is time, this is the beginning of time. Somewhere over there, you could go a million miles that direction. God still exists, but he does, he's not confined by time. And where does God end? Does God end here? No, when, when time is no more, God, God will still exist, and you could go a million miles that direction, and God won't ever disappear or not be because he's eternal. Something that's eternal means it has no beginning, and it has no ending. So for God to say, I was the first and the last, he's communicating on our level. I was here and I'm here. Anything in between where you live, I'm there. But just know I'm everywhere else too. This is the relative time that mattered. But he's not defined to this. So he's our father. He's our heavenly father. He's the one true God. He didn't fulfill that role, that role in a mode, but he is simply father through creation. He is the son through redemption. This one probably doesn't take a lot of convincing of us that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. But what if I told you the God that exists eternally was the Son? Because he's indivisible. In Scripture, the only personification of God is God manifested in flesh. Let's go to Romans chapter 1 and verse 3. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. Jesus Christ was God manifested in flesh. It's God himself come to earth. Let's go to Matthew 1 and 23. Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth the son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Not a portion of God with us, not a co-equal, co-eternal, divisible part of God with us, not a demi-God with us. It is God with us. Why 
Why does this matter? Because God knew that the only way man's sin could be redeemed is if his own plan, his own justice was fulfilled for man to be redeemed. And God's justice said the only way that sin or disobedience could be justified was through the shedding of blood. And so God put in an example into time to demonstrate his law of justice. It was the first covenant, or we call it the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. And it was through this practice of the Old Covenant, the killing of animals and the shedding of their blood, that he demonstrated to humanity that blood was required to atone sin. But there was a problem with the example, it only had the ability to atone sin. It did not have the ability to remit sin. The atoning power of sin was God would give a period of grace and mercy because of the blood sacrifice. This is why it happened every year. Annually, there was the atoning offering. But God said, now that the example has been put in place, humanity will see when I come robed in flesh, because spirit does not have blood, and God needed blood to fulfill his own law. So God robes himself in flesh, manifests himself in flesh, come, lives among us, and offers his flesh as the sacrifice the only pure sacrifice to remit our sin. You can't shed your blood for your sin because your blood is tainted by the sin. Your neighbor or your family member or your loved one can't offer their blood for your sin. Because as good as they may think they are, their blood is tainted by sin. So only pure blood, only the purest of blood, of human blood could be offered for the purification of our sin. And that could only happen when God come manifested in flesh, lived among us, sinless, and then offered himself as the sacrifice to forgive us. And Peter put it this way in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. That we are baptized for the remission of our sins. Not the atoning of our sins, but that our sins would be remitted. Removed. As if they had never existed. Gone. As far as the east is from the west, placed into a, a sea of forgetfulness, never to be remembered in the eyes of God, removed from the records, gone. When you come out of those waters of baptism, when I say you're as pure before God as you've ever been in your life, it's not fictitious, it's not hyperbole, it's not, it's not evangelistically speaking, it's the truth. Of all truth, of all truth, the power of the blood of Jesus Christ has remitted your sin. 
man, there's something powerful about baptism. Well, that's not what we're talking about today. The sonship of God is the only personification of God. Now, I've probably jumped through all of these verses in that statement, but let's go through some of these so you know it's not just me making it up. It's in the Bible. Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. For by him were all three things created that are in heaven and in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones, dominions, principalities, powers, all things were created by him and for him. And in him being all, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. It is by him all things were made and consist, even us. His plan of salvation is for us. Let's go to John chapter 1. Let's read verses 1 down through a few here. In the beginning was the word, capital W, word meaning the breath of God. I believe in the Big Bang. Not the one the scientists believe in, but I believe in this Big Bang. Genesis 1 and 1 says, The earth was void and without form. Darkness covered all the face. It was, I presume, silent if there was nothing there. And out of the silence came a booming sound. Let there be light. That sounded terrible with a man with a cold. <clears throat> Let there be light. This was the first evidence of God. Powerful evidence. Let there be light. His word, his breath spoke. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. Why? Because the word was God. It was God who said, let there be light. Next verse 2. The same was in the beginning with God. Verse 3. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. We've touched on this. Verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and darkness comprehended it not. Aren't you glad when you walk into the room and turn on the lights, you don't have to get a shovel and move all the darkness out for the light to shine? That's how it is in your life. When Jesus walks into your dark heart, his light shines. Now, there may shine, the light might shine upon some stuff we need to move out of the room. But the darkness doesn't stick around. The darkness cannot overcome the light. As soon as the switch comes on, you can see what's happening. I ain't got time. Let's keep going. Verse 6. <clears throat> and there was a man sent from God whose name was John. Uh, let's jump down to verse 13. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. What's the name of God? Jesus. The only personified demonstration and character of God is Jesus Christ. Verse 13. Which was born 
not of blood, nor of the will of man, nor the will of flesh, but of God. Pause. What caused Mary to conceive? The Holy Ghost. The angel said, the Holy Ghost will move upon you and cause you to conceive. Jesus was not an illegitimate child. That's a lie from hell. Well, that was blunt. <clears throat> he was planned. He was anticipated. He was prophesied about. It was known he was coming. Verse 14. And the word was made flesh. This is Jesus Christ. And dwelt among us. And we beheld the glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Full of grace and truth. Fatherhood was demonstrated again. Through the eternal spirit of God manifesting itself in flesh. God made himself a body. God did not make a divisible part of himself a body. He made himself a body and came and lived and dwelt among us. First Timothy 3.16. I've said it a hundred times, I think, this morning. But here's it is in the word. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Notice that it is a colon and not a period. That's not the end of the sentence. It's not the end of the thought. It's not the conclusion of the statement. Let me give you a law of communication. Good communicators start at the level of everybody's understanding, and through communication, they take people to another level of understanding. This statement is a great practice in communication. It starts with everybody's understanding. Our base understanding is, I don't understand God. He's a mystery to me. Nobody's going to argue with that. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Keep reading. God was manifested in flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in this world, received up into glory. God, the one eternal spirit, was manifested in flesh. That flesh being the flesh of Jesus Christ. Did you know Jesus was a common name among the Hebrews? Maybe even just an everyday name. A lot of people probably had the name Jesus. Mary couldn't walk into the market and say, Jesus! She probably had a whole crew of kids come running her direction. That's why the Bible distinguishes him as Jesus Christ. Have you ever looked at the definition of Christ? Christ means the anointed one. 
Matter of fact, if you dig into it a little bit deeper, it's more than just the anointed one. It's the only anointed one for a specific purpose. Jesus, the anointed one for a specific purpose. Jesus anointed to come and redeem mankind from their sins. Well, that got me excited when I learned it. Revelations 1 and 8. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, saith the Lord, which is, which was, which is to come, the Almighty. I think we already covered the timeline, didn't we? <clears throat> he is the mighty God. Isaiah 9 and 6 says he's the everlasting Father and the Prince of Peace. That is fatherhood and sonship in one verse. So how can he be a father and a son at the same time? Because he's indivisible. Father is not a personification of God. Father is a characteristic and an interaction with God. Jesus himself testified of his identity as God when he said, He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. we got to read this. John, I'm surprised I haven't fell over yet. It's 12, 12. John 14, 7. If ye have known me, you should have known my father also. And from henceforth, you know him and have seen him. Verse 8. Philip said unto him, Lord, show us the father and we'll be all right. It'll suffice us. We'll be pacified. This is, this is Jesus talking to Philip giving him the great revelation of who he is. You know, Jesus talked in all of these parables and, and all of these typologies and all of these stories in and, and the beginning of his ministry. Now it's the ending of his ministry, and he's, he's having just a face-to-face, -face, straight up, lay it out, no mystery conversation with Philip. And Philip's like, all right, Lord, I get it. Show me the Father. Jesus was without sin, but I don't know if he was without sarcasm. Did he look at Philip and go, verse 10. Oh, yeah. Believest thou not that I am, there we go. Believest thou not that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. People ask, where was the Father during the time Jesus was on earth? Well, according to John 14 and 10, he was in him. He was not a celestial blob floating around in the ether. All right, verse 11. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe me for the very work's sake. Verse 12. Oh, that's the next one. We'll get to that one. That's a good one. He's like, I'm right here, Philip. You're looking at the Father. I am the personification of the Father. Philip, from a child to this age... Nightly, if you're a good, practicing, religious, following Jew of your heritage, 
Every evening you have recited, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. You are monotheistic to the depths of your bone, Philip. How dare you look at me in my singular posture and singular personification and ask, where's the other guy? I'm right here, Philip. The Father is in me, and I am in the Father. And what's happening by me is because of the Father working in me. I'm getting excited. <clears throat> John 10 and 30. Jesus is again having this conversation. This time it's written by the great apostle John. Jesus is like, all right, I'm pulling it all back. I'm not, not no mystery, no shadows, no clouds, no, no glass dimly. It's just straight up, here's it up. Pure water, no flavoring. No sugar for the syrup. Here it is. I and my father are one. How can that be? How can you be in sonship and my father at the same time? Can I explain that to you? This strapping, incredible, handsome young man in this blue shirt over here name is Trenton Johnson, is my son. Doesn't take a whole lot of biology class for you to figure out. For me to say he's my son means I'm his father. So in this very moment, I exist as a father. That was pretty easy to prove. Over here sitting in another blue shirt with a gray jacket on is my father, which makes me a son. So in this very moment, I am a son. Did you catch it? Inside of a singular moment, I am both a father and a son. Does that change who I am? Does it change my personification? No. You can be multiple people at one time. That doesn't make you schizophrenic. It's the way in which you're interacting with people. It's the way in which you are building relationship with people. It's the way that you are personified to a person. He is your heavenly father. Was, is, and will always be your heavenly father on your one-on-one -on -one relationship with God. When you go into your prayer closet, pray to your heavenly father. Now, there's other relationships in Scripture between people and God. As a congregation, and even as the church as a whole around the world, we are known to God as His bride, and He is the bridegroom. I am not individually God's bride. Individually, I'm His child. But as a collective group, the relationship between the mass of humanity, the church, the ecclesia is the Greek word, the gathering of the called out, 
the relationship between that group of people and God is bride and bridegroom. If you go to your prayer closet and you want to pray like you're the bride of Christ, I guess that's your right to do, but it just doesn't seem like it would make sense to me. You're his child. As though he's your daddy. Hey, father, I need you. And he's there to answer your prayer. I do have just a couple more verses and we'll be done. Trenton, come over here and get on the piano and give these people hope. Exactly. Hebrews 9 and 22. And almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without the shedding of blood is no remission. It takes his blood to remove and to remit our sins. Hebrews 10 and 5. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sanctify, no, sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body thou hast prepared me. When he came, he prepared for himself a body so that he could offer that body to become our salvation. Isaiah 43 and 11. Oh, you're going to like this one. Do you have Isaiah 43 and 11? He's working it. I gave him a massive list, so... We've not even hit all of them today. (laughs) Context. Old Testament. Prophet in the Old Testament. Speaking about a God that he's never seen, never felt, no Holy Ghost, he wasn't a priest. He's just speaking about, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, that God. And here's what he said about it. I, even I, am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. There was not a second deity that come to save me. I'm going to stomp through some people's tulip gardens. The father did not look at his son and say, I want you to go down to earth and save my bride. It's the most ludicrous acknowledge I've ever heard. It's the most unbiblical thing. It's a reproach upon any father who would send their son to save their own spouse. God's not a fool that he would do such a dumb thing. God said, I will go to earth myself. I will manifest myself in flesh, and I will save my own children. I will save my own bride. He said to us in the Old Testament, when he was only known as the mighty God, 
the everlasting Father and the Prince of Peace. He said, I and I alone am the Savior. There is none other. I'm excited today. I'm glad to know who Jesus is. I'm glad to know who God is. I'm glad to have an understanding today that he's not some lesser. He's not some division of God. He is the one true only God come to earth manifested in flesh to save me from my sins and if it's just as true that he created the earth and it is true and it's just as true that he loves you and it is true and it's so true today that he came to save you you don't have to live in sin you don't have to live in bondage you don't have to live with doubt and fear and confusion in your life he came to save and to set you free. Thank you for listening to the LifeSpring Church Podcast. Join us in person on Sundays at 11 a.m. Visit us online at lifespringchurch.us.